Every software company works off of several different development environments. At the very least, there is staging, testing, and production. Every push to staging can be spun up as an application to be explored, tinkered with, and tested. These ad hoc spin-ups are known as release apps. A release app is an environment for engineers to play with and potentially throw away or promote to production. Release apps have been made easier due to technologies such as infrastructure as code, continuous integration, and Kubernetes. Tommy McClung is the co-founder of Release App, a company which makes it easy to spin up release environments for your software. Tommy joins the show to discuss release workflows and his work building Release App. We're looking for writers for Software Engineering Daily. If you are interested in writing or contributing research material for Software Engineering Daily, send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. I'm also looking for investments in infrastructure or developer tooling companies. You can send me an email also if you are somebody building a company, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. I'd love to hear from you. Tommy, welcome to the show. Thank you. You work on releaseapp.io, or a company called Release, and it's a system for developing release environments or developing staging environments. Can you explain why it's necessary to have staging environments? Sure. Yeah. So I've been uh, you know, building technology for around 20 years, back to the early days of when Blade servers, that's when I started, was back in the Blade server days. So if you're old enough to remember that, you know, you'd rack up a whole bunch of servers in a little tiny rack in a data center. And your job was to make those servers as, you know, useful to developers as humanly possible. And the idea always has become like, how do you create these environments for developers prior to releasing to production that replicate what production actually is? And for the last 20 years, you know, there's been various flavors of this, starting from blade servers to VMs to now with Docker and Kubernetes, getting developers access to environments that look like production helps them produce higher quality releases, better code, fix bugs, get their uh, software in a state that when they release it to production, it's going gonna, it's gonna to perform and be as you know, bug-free as humanly possible. So, and, and I think the other thing that's happening today is as applications are getting more and more complex, building environments is becoming more and more challenging. You know, production is the ultimate output of all of this, right? You have a prod environment, your users go and, and they experience your site or your app. But the, the pre-production environments, getting those to replicate your external production site is incredibly challenging. And this is something that we felt just recently, I was prior to starting release, I was the chief technology officer at a company by the name of TrueCar. And we had about 250 engineers and replicating environments for developers was incredibly challenging. And so that's where we really felt the pain was having staging environments on demand really for the developers so that they all didn't have to share a single environment. And that's generally what you see even to this day is that most companies kind of rely on a single staging environment where, where all their code from their mainline kind of makes its way to before it goes to production. Um, and when you only have one of those, and as your engineering team grows, uh, it becomes a place for uh, a bottleneck. And so, you know, we believe that you, know, you should have a, an environment that's as production replica as humanly possible created every time a developer does a pull request, and it should just happen. It doesn't need to be something that you have a big DevOps team 
you know, going off and creating, it should just be kind of happening behind the scenes. So if a developer needs to test something that looks like production, it, it just happens behind the scenes. Now, this is something that Kubernetes has made a lot easier, presumably. Kubernetes is my platform for very easily spinning up new containerized environments. Why would I need an entire product? Why would I need an entire platform, a SaaS solution for this kind of thing when Kubernetes does it so well? Or I could use ECS or AKS, AKS, one of these uh, containerized spin-up environments. Sure. Well, it's kind of the difference between rolling it yourself and buying something off the shelf, right? Kubernetes, you know, we're actually using Kubernetes behind the scenes to orchestrate this. So obviously that's the, the you know, a big part of the reason we can do what we're doing. And I would argue that a lot of products in the world today don't need Kubernetes for their production environments. It's, you know, a lot of configuration. You likely need to have a person or a team that's uh, configuring and managing it in order to just to get the benefits of Kubernetes and, and in order to build this kind of on-demand environment creation, you know, that's a whole bunch of tooling internally that you would have to build on top of Kubernetes, which as most people know, isn't the simplest thing to operate. Um, that's why there tends to be a team of people kind of running the Kubernetes clusters. So we tend to find success with customers who haven't yet jumped into a full-fledged Kubernetes environment um, have Dockerized. They, they, they're running Docker locally for development. They may push out to ECS uh, when they go into production, but their, their environments pre-production are, are still kind of in this state of like, we still have a single staging environment. We haven't jumped into Kubernetes yet. And, and the investment into Kubernetes is a big one. You know, if you've ever spent time setting up a Kubernetes cluster, you know, even for the simplest apps, it's a it's a configuration nightmare inside a YAML. You know, the debugging and the output isn't, uh, you know, when something isn't working right, isn't great. So you're going to have to put a pretty big time investment into making it work. So our thesis here is if we can make that pretty turnkey, you would get the benefits of Kubernetes in these pre-production kind of on-demand ephemeral environments without having to become organizationally like a Kubernetes expert. So, you know, the larger organizations who have like a Kubernetes team, they may be rolling something like this on their own. Over time, we feel like, you know, organizations are going to realize it's like, hey, you know, we're spending a lot of time and energy in this. If, if there's something off the shelf we can use, we'll, we'll jump into this when the product is mature enough to support our use case. And the other thing I would say is that we're not just dealing with Kubernetes. I think the other pre-production issue that you run into is Kubernetes is kind of like where your applications live, but you have data, you have native cloud services that you have to deal with, whether that's, you know, Kinesis or Lambdas, RDS, or, you know, any databases you might be using. Kubernetes deals with kind of the application container tier, but orchestrating ephemeral environments that include all of those things is a pretty big challenge, which again requires people to go tool that internally. So we look at the entire kind of ecosystem and are working towards building ephemeral environments that don't just include containers, but also include native services as well. Why is that difficult? Why is it difficult to, to integrate these native services into ad hoc pull request environments? You know, a, a lot of it is namespacing. And so whenever you have a pull, let's say you have a branch, you know, feature A that you're working on. What you really want is an entire isolated ecosystem that just contains feature A. So that branch, you know, you get a pull request inside of Git or Bitbucket or GitLab. You want that then to flow all the way through, including kind of the URLs, the DNS entries, 
the namespace inside of Kubernetes and even the native services. So ensuring that you've created an isolated self-contained ecosystem with all of the various different pieces put together, you know, is a, is a Kubernetes issue for sure, where you've got to get the namespacing correct and you have to get the ingress rules correct. You may have to have an Nginx proxy included that's directing traffic where it needs to go based on the names of all the containers that come up that are unique based on that, that feature branch. But then, then you also have to connect that into all the various different AWS services that you might, might be using so that, you know, your environment can connect to all the services behind the scenes. So for instance, RDS, you might want to have a copy or a snapshot of production or a seed data set that comes up uh, dedicated to just that environment. And that needs to be accessible by that environment through environment variables to the right URL. So there's just a ton of orchestration that has to go on to connect all the dots. If all you're trying to do is bring up a Kubernetes cluster in a namespace, yeah, sure, you could probably go do it. But when you want to make it look like a replica of production, there's a lot of moving parts behind the scenes that you have to, essentially, if you're doing this yourself, you'll have to script up and tool on your own. The the space that you're working in, it's funny because I'm sure you know this was a feature of Heroku for uh, many years before you started a company around it. And I think that it was probably easier for Heroku. So if you deploy your application to Heroku, you can have these staging, you can integrate with GitHub and, and have these staging environments for every new pull request in GitHub. My sense is that that was easier for Heroku to do because Heroku had strictures around how you're going to be deploying your application. You have to do it in the Heroku fashion. Therefore, it's easier for them to put constraints around release environments that could happen. Do you have any perspective for why Heroku was able to do this for so long before a few companies came up around doing what you're doing? Yeah, I think I think you hit the nail on the head there. You know, within the Heroku ecosystem, they've put pretty well-defined parameters around what can run in Heroku, right? So, you know, prescriptive environments become a lot easier there because they have all of the control over everything that's going on behind the scenes. And we've actually had some customers who were on Heroku. So I think this is a good different differentiating point of like what where do you kind of grow out of Heroku and what do you do, right? So if you're on Heroku and you start getting more complex applications where you might have you know multiple microservices, you know, static front ends, your application is starting to grow outside of what you know kind of is simple in Heroku, but you tend to really like the features. And these review apps are one of those things that I think a lot of users took for granted within Heroku that's like, hey, these things just kind of can happen. But as soon as they start to grow out of that, whether they want to start containerizing, they start wanting to potentially move into Kubernetes and start and start becoming a more kind of complicated application where they might be using native AWS services that are you know, difficult to kind of replicate within the Heroku environment. This is where we see that the opportunity exists because you know, Heroku doesn't fit all needs, and but the features within Heroku and review apps tend to be one that users kind of liked quite a bit. So we actually looked at that as an opportunity to kind of go tackle the next generation of more turnkey kind of platforms, call it a platform as, as a service if you want to, where you can have complex, you know, multi-service microservice applications that get some of those same features that you might get within Heroku and review apps is one of those. And we felt this need in a larger organization for ourselves where our application 
you know, at TrueCar could not fit within a Heroku environment. It just had too many moving parts. We had, you know, uh, Hadoop clusters. We had all sorts of stuff going on there. And when we tried to kind of look for products off the shelf that would solve this, you know, there really wasn't anything that was full stack. You, you had Heroku that would deal with kind of small applications, medium-sized applications. And then you had front-end review apps, kind of the Netlify's and uh, Vercel or Zite or whatever you want to call it now, um, where they were tackling the front ends. But if I wanted an, a, an ephemeral environment that went from front end all the way down to native services and AWS, the only solution at the time was to go build this yourself. So we see that as the opportunity, which is to kind of take that full stack from end to end, which you know you can't really fit within the Heroku world. Indeed. So the just to take the the business perspective for a moment, there are all these different ways that people are dealing with their staging environments. There are these different Git workflows where like I push to Git and it spins up a, a release environment automatically on Kubernetes and then I promote it. I like it. And there's a, you know, we talked to a company Feature Peak recently that kind of does what you're doing, but they also spin it up in this environment that makes it very easy to share I just wonder about this from a couple of perspectives. One, is it is it too busy? Are there too many different people to actually have a differentiated enough solution to, to stand out to people? And two, can you actually cover all the bases that people need out of release environments? Good, good questions. I think the, the fact that there are multiple companies kind of going after this space means that there's definitely a need in the market. I think that's the first thing that I think. You know, everybody's kind of tackling it from a different angle. You have kind of more front-end focused review app environments, which the feature peaks and kind of Netlify and Vercel, they're kind of going after it from that perspective. And then you have companies like us that think that like, hey, if you're really going to solve this, you do have to tackle what you said, which is how do you, how do you cover the bases of all the things people are going to need? And so obviously you can't do that from the beginning, right? You can't say, hey, we're going to solve the world's problems in every single you know, kind of service that everybody needs right from the beginning. But there are common problems that, you know, tend to come up over, you know, kind of repeatedly. And one of those is data, right? Like staging environments, if you just have the applications up and running without representative data of what's actually happening in production, you kind of have a, a staging environment that is almost good enough to replicate what's in production, but not quite there. So, we actually think that data is a really, really big problem in the space that, you know, all of these are, are kind of like not attacking directly. If I want to have an environment that looks like production, you can test in production and there's companies out there like feature flagging companies and, and uh, launch darklies of the world that are kind of coming at it from that perspective. But if you are an organization that believes that, hey, we got to get our stuff ready before users see it. If you want to have a staging environment that replicates prod, you've got to have production-like data. So I think that data is kind of a key piece of this that, you know, when I look at the space, sure, there are lots of players in it, but I think that the, the, the kind of company that's going to unlock this is really going to solve the data side of it. Because I think the tooling around, you know, like GitHub and GitHub Actions and being able to create, you know, containerized environments within Kubernetes, like... You know, it, it's work. It's definitely work. It's not. It's not rocket science, and it can be done. But really, solving how a, a, an environment looks like production, so that developers trust it to kind of be a representative environment that that they can trust, so that when I go to prod, it looks like prod. And I think from a business perspective, that's the opportunity that we see is 
going end to end, you know, front ends all the way down to uh, data sets where, you know, we even have customers that are running uh, Hadoop clusters that we're helping them create environments out of. And I think the challenge is like picking which services matter, right? Like if you go look at AWS and you say, hey, we need to cover everything that they have or GCP and everything that they have, uh, you'll chase your tail for a long time. But there are common problems in the space that keep coming up over and over again. And data is a really big one of those. Yeah, data. I mean, the thing about data is if you want to replicate a pull request in a data environment, you may need to replicate the entire data lake, or you could decide to read from the data lake, but there's, you know, problems there. You might actually, you know, if you if you end up writing back to the data lake, it could be a problem. So maybe you want to give this pull request environment only read access and not write access. What are the challenges that come from De- developing release environments around large data applications. Yeah, I think I think you hit a couple of them, and we actually recommend not trying to share environments, uh, data environments, because of exactly the reasons that you spoke about. As soon as you start saying like, "Hey, I need to only give read access to an environment," you're not truly giving it the functionality that looks like production. So we actually tend to leverage snapshots quite a bit. And that's one of the nice things that AWS provides with most of their data sets is kind of like these nightly snapshots that are automatically created for your RDS instances. And we support RDS today, and we're going to expand this in the future. But those snapshots actually become really good either starting points for obfuscated seed data or depending on your organization, like just direct snapshots that are exactly prod replicas we have a, a feature called instant data sets, which we create those kind of ahead of time. So every night when a, a snapshot is created, we will spin up a set of kind of ready and waiting RDS instances so that when your when your environment comes up, it can just check it out. And instantaneously, it has a production or seed obfuscated production replica data so that you can instantaneously have access to really, really large data sets. Now, of course, there's a cost trade-off that goes with this. So you're kind of trading off speed versus cost. If you want you know, ready access for 100 developers, you're going to have to have you know, a queue of ready and waiting databases. But if you really, really want to move fast and you want your developers to have access to production-like data, you know, we have a solution that, that creates these kind of ready and waiting instant data sets that, you know, you leverage some of the things that AWS already does with snapshots built in. So we think that there are a lot of things in and around the space of data, you know, extending that outside of just kind of databases into data lakes, like you spoke about, where creating those kind of replica environments when you can is, a, is, is the best way to go about it. And if you can't, then you have to have rules around, hey, are these read-only? Are these shared data sets? Can they be write-only? And we've seen customers struggle with this, right? where you have a single staging environment that's connected to some prod replica data. And a lot of front ends use that to kind of point back to data sets and they stomp on each other's toes all the time. So all of these things are challenges that we think need to be solved in order to kind of solve this staging environment as a service, you know, solution kind of ubiquitously. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about what release actually is. So it is an actual app can you explain what the release app does for you? Sure. So, I mean, simply put, it creates an environment on every single pull request, right? So in your source control system, whenever you do a PR, we will behind the scenes automatically create a pull request environment with a URL 
that tracks the branch that you are working on. So let's say you're working on feature A, you do a pull request, an entire environment with all of the services, you know, a snapshot of production data if you want it, will spin up uh, a containerized application. So let's say you have 5, 10, 15, 20, uh, you know, Docker containers. We will spin those up inside of a Kubernetes namespace. As a customer, you don't have to know anything about Kubernetes. This is kind of behind the scenes how we're doing it. But it will create all of the internetworking connections. It will make sure that there are public-facing URLs for the services that need to be exposed to the internet. We will provide environment variables that define kind of all of the custom networking host parameters that you need. And so when you have a PR within GitHub, you'll have a link that gets sent to you right in the comments inside of GitHub that says, hey, your review environment is created. Click on the link. And then you have a standalone version of of your entire ecosystem at your ready. And the way that we're seeing customers use this is a couple of things. One is they're using it to, you know, kind of debug complicated problems that only arise when you're connected to production data. The other thing that we're seeing it used for is kind of the, you know, the product manager, the designer, the team that's working on a collective, you know, kind of project using these environments as their as their review environments, somewhat like you talked about in Heroku, but you have full access into that uh, ecosystem. And we provide this uh, to our professional plan and above users. We actually use uh, Canines, which is an incredibly great tool. It's a plug for Canines where we automatically allow the developers kind of to be able to get at their uh, running environments, you know, console uh, logs, being able to um, shell directly into those containers. And it's a standalone environment that just tracks that in, in entire branch. So you're completely isolated from every other change and, and you get to make sure that your change works. As soon as you merge that into your mainline branch, that environment just disappears. It automatically gets destroyed, saves resources, and these are ephemeral in that way where they spin up and spin down. Gotcha. and. You mentioned namespaces as being something that's particularly difficult to engineer around. Tell me about building the infrastructure to namespace a sample environment properly. Yeah, so a lot of it is um, making sure that your Kubernetes manifests are done properly. But it starts with kind of architecting all the way from, you know, what are the external services that you're going to expose all the way down through how does that make its way into the Kubernetes cluster itself and into the AWS services that you might be leveraging. So we tend to, you know, kind of tag the branches uh, or sorry, the environments based on the branch that you're building. So it might be, like I said, feature A. That then becomes, you know, kind of the, the anchor point for all the rest of the services and the namespaces. And environment variables tend to be the very most kind of effective way to kind of communicate amongst all of these different components. So, you know, we'll create all of the uh, environment variables that are automatically generated from all the ingress rules that get created so that as you're talking into it externally or container point ports and node ports within the cluster, all of those host names have to be consistent inside of that namespace so that all of the services can communicate in within the Kubernetes cluster and then outward into the uh, AWS ecosystem as well. Um, I think the other part of that that was was particularly tricky was, you know, how 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 does that flow all the way from kind of pull request, getting it back into you know where the developers are, the GitHub you know kind of side of things, so that when an environment is created, it's very clear that hey, this is a, a branch for this feature, 
and that this developer is isolated within the namespace. So those namespaces can't talk to each other. Like if I have you know, feature A, feature B, feature C, they might all be sitting inside of a Kubernetes cluster. All of those things have to be isolated from each other. You know, we tend to just lean on what Kubernetes did there from you know, namespacing um, and security rules inside of Kubernetes. But that architecture, you know, kind of keeping the namespacing consistent across all the services are things that we had to tackle in order to pull this off. Is there anything that you've had to do to make it fast and responsive? Because I think making it buttery smooth is something that's pretty important, just given that what you're competing with is these workflows that people have stitched together or uh, ad hoc staging environments, and it's always you know, five clicks and three pull requests and, you know, a shell script to run or something like that. Anything you've had to do to make it faster? Yeah, I think one of the things are builds. And so, you know, technically Docker has some really great features built into their build system with Docker builds, being able to cache layers and making sure that that's done uh, very well. Front ends are a good example of where this always bites people. Your node modules, if you end up building that over and over and over again, it's just really, really slow to do that. So being really smart about how you use the Docker caching. And then also inside of the Kubernetes subsystem is a whole Docker build kind of engine sitting in there. And so our builds run within the Kubernetes cluster that the customer is running on, which makes it so that caching layer works on behalf of the user incredibly well. So we want to have like the fastest builds humanly possible so that when these environments are created, the builds themselves, uh, you know, aren't the bottleneck, which tend to be the case in a lot of these systems. You got to wait 30 minutes for your build to finish. And and then your environment can get spun up. And by that time, maybe you've lost interest. So we've spent a lot of time really in and around the Docker build and Kubernetes build subsystem, making sure those builds are incredibly fast. And we're leveraging things like ECR um, so that we've got uh, really fast access inside of the EKS you know, subsystem where we're getting our images incredibly fast. They pull down very quickly uh, because I think at the end of the day, like you said, this just needs to be seamless, right? A developer does a pull request that should take at most minutes uh, for that environment to be created so that instantaneously when that pull request is created, that environment kind of spins up on the other side. So it tends to be how you deal with caching along this kind of, you know, kind of chain of, of things that happen. So you do a build, you cache that build within the Docker uh, subsystem. You're leveraging what's happening there within the Kubernetes subsystem. You're leveraging all of the Docker build kind of functionality that lives underneath the covers there, and then caching those images within EK. Uh, sorry, the ECR repository, so that when those images get pulled again, it's incredibly fast. So that streamlined layer of functionality is a, is as fast as humanly possible. Among all the engineering teams you've worked with, the pull request environments that you've had to work with people on spinning up, is there anything else you've seen that surprised you? You you mentioned the data stack, the Hadoop type of environments that you've had to help people with. Anything that's thrown a wrench into your your app? Uh, Actually, every customer uh, is unique. I, I think that's the thing that has been most surprising to me. It's incredible the differences in the way people build software. You know, it, it, the way that Docker gets used in, in real life, it's not as pretty as the tutorials. Uh, a lot of times there's a lot of messy infrastructure, a lot of messy, you know, uses of technology that when, 
you know, you're trying to build a generic platform that anybody can use, you have to deal with that stuff, right? So, you know, I think ultimately the the most surprising thing has been how do these environments kind of tend to like like need to be uh, created in and around what the customer already had. You know, we we had an initial assumption that Docker Compose was going to be a really good starting point for for users, right? Docker Compose, if you go look at those files, they're, you know, kind of a blueprint to what they want in their environment, but they're usually built not with a running environment in mind. They're usually built with kind of a local kind of development ecosystem in mind. And then when you try to translate that into Kubernetes, there's a ton of stuff that just does not work. You have networking differences, you have kind of command differences between what, you know, Docker commands and Kubernetes commands deal with. And so translating from the world of of kind of Docker and Docker Compose into Kubernetes, and then coupling that with all the various different ways that people are leveraging all of those has been an, an incredibly challenging problem. And I think a lot of times what you find is that, you know, any company can kind of sit down, put a DevOps team together, kind of home grow a problem or home grow a solution to this that fits just for them. Um, because they know all the nuances nuances of their Docker ecosystem, their their applications, their networking. When you try to build a platform that's generic, that will kind of consume anybody's application and turning it into a running environment, you have to deal with all of these permutations. So for us, I think that's been the most complex and challenging piece of this is, is really, you know, surprised at how much difference there are in everyone's Docker subsystem and ecosystem that, you know, you think Docker is kind of this one size fits all thing. It's really not. People use this in, in amazingly different ways across organizations. What about the integrations with Slack, the integrations with GitHub? Have you seen anything in the integration side of things that has surprised you or been particularly difficult to implement? Yeah, a couple of things. The GitHub integration is an interesting one because we want to be right within the pull request that the user is doing within their normal workflow. The the status updates in GitHub give us fits. <laughs> and what I mean by that is, you know, we want to post a status message into GitHub when a build starts, a deployment starts, a, an environment has been created. And all of those various different kind of status updates like have to be done incredibly timely and correctly, because depending on a user's GitHub settings, they might have it so that if a status check fails, you know, the PR can't pass and you can't promote to production. And so if our build, for whatever reason, the status doesn't come back correctly, or it comes back as an error when it actually finished, all of those kind of integrations into status uh, connections into GitHub PRs are, are finicky. And I don't know if, if that's a, a GitHub issue or a release issue, but it's been a pretty tricky kind of integration to get solved. And I think it's important though, because you know this needs to be pretty seamless with what the user kind of, and the end user being a developer, you know, it needs to be seamless. Like, so those status updates are incredibly important. And we've just seen that getting them correct and right has been an incredibly difficult problem technically because, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of having to go down into Kubernetes, you know, use kubectl to get status information out of the Kubernetes cluster, pull that out, parse it, get it into the format that it needs to look like in order to surface it back up to, you know, kind of the GitHub workflow and making sure that that happens 
with the correct data at the right time and round tripping has been very, very interesting and difficult to deal with. On the Slack side, that one was pretty straightforward and easy. We just use that to kind of post updates when PR environments are ready. There's not too much magic on that one, but the GitHub and the source control integrations, obviously being where the developers are, are, are kind of the trickiest places to deal with. If you're building this on your own, like you got to figure out all this stuff. So that's part of the other answer to your original question, which is, you know, why shouldn't people just build this on their own? Like if you're really going to do this and make it seamless for your developer, you know, you've got to tackle all of the problems that I've been talking about end to end. And so it's a, it's a really big project to pull off. Now your infrastructure itself is something I wonder about. So you've got this app that I can use to spin up staging environments, which is great. But I imagine you've got some stuff going on the back end, maybe some Lambda functions that are orchestrating things, or maybe you've just got a, a long-running container service that's or vir- virtual machine that's running your program to orchestrate the spinning up of these different apps. Tell me about what your back end actually has. So we build release with release. So the entire back end is on an EKS cluster. So we actually run in a production environment within the release ecosystem, which you can do. We don't promote that much, but if you want to, as a customer, you could run your production workloads through us all the way through kind of end-to-end CICD. But we we run in Rails, uh, kind of our backend service is Rails, just because we've been doing Rails since like 2006. So as developers, we know it really, really well. That's what kind of hosts the app, the APIs, like all the services that the front end connects to. And then on the back end, it's all running within containers that we have running inside of our own namespace for release that were, were, you know, containers come up and down. It's just like any other Kubernetes ecosystem as far as like our backend infrastructure is concerned. We do have to connect to the Kubernetes clusters directly, right? So one of the things that we do is we'll create when a customer comes on, we actually spin up an EKS cluster uh, for them to run release inside of. And we actually run it within their AWS account. So you sign up for an account and you you upgrade to our professional plan. We're actually going to create an EKS cluster within your AWS account where all of your release environments live. And the reason we do that is so that those environments can have access to other AWS native services that that application might need to leverage. So again, the complexity of everyone's application kind of warrants having these not running within like a hosted environment like you would with Heroku. But what you're doing is you're pushing basically the the compute engine out to EKS within their AWS account. We're remotely kind of controlling and, and dealing with laying down containers. When a PR environment spins up, we make sure the namespace and everything is correct. The URLs are correct. We update DNS entries. But those containers end up running within an EKS cluster within our customer's AWS account, which then really gives them the ability to go off and connect to all of their own internal AWS services, whether they've got lambdas, whatever it might be. So I think that one of the trickiest parts of what we're building is kind of this central hub managing lots and lots of remote EKS clusters. Uh, So I think, you know, we've had to do a lot of things with queuing. We use Sidekick to to kind of fire off build jobs and, and deployment jobs and making sure we have consistency throughout the ecosystem. Audit trailing, you know, making sure we know every single thing that's gone on within all of these clusters. 
There's a lot of technology behind the scenes to kind of make sure we always know what happened. And also so that we can roll back um, in the event that something uh, did occur, you know, a customer didn't want, you can click a button and roll back to a previous version or what, what, what you might want to try to do there. So technically, we're kind of trying to leverage as much, you know, Kubernetes as we can, but realizing that the customer isn't going to only be living within a container environment. Applications now are spread across containers and native AWS GCP services, and it has to fit within that ecosystem. Do you see this becoming a platform as a service that is stretching beyond the just like ad hoc staging environments? Like, do you see this eventually trying to get into the production serving? kind of area? You know, I think that's going to be kind of a case-by-case basis. We definitely see that it can be done because we're doing it ourselves, right? We're running release with release in production. And we actually have a couple of customers that are running production workloads as well. That being said, it isn't where we tend to find the pain point today. The pain point today is like, hey, how do I create kind of on-demand environments for my developers? And we think that that problem is huge. And it's only going to continue to get harder as applications get more and more complex. What the pattern that we've seen is that when somebody comes on to release for staging and an ephemeral pull request environments, they see how simple it is to do that. And they say, hey, why can't we run our production workloads this way as well? And for a couple of customers, we've done that. And we're talking about whether or not that's kind of like a future direction for us. But you know, I think that Yes, the answer is, yeah, we do kind of see a world where that can happen. But today, we're just kind of laser focused on this staging problem. Yeah, because I I mean, one issue I can imagine with the actual production environment is, I assume you'd have to scale up at some point. So I mean, you know, if your service gets busy, you'd want to scale it up. If you're just spinning up staging environments, these things just like you only need one of them and it gets torn down eventually. If you're doing it in production, you would actually have to solve for the case of scalability. There's a lot less problems to solve. Well, different problems. I wouldn't say less on the ephemeral kind of pull request environments. Yeah, you're right. Like production monitoring and alerting, uptime, you know, guarantees, you know, making sure that you have scalability, which, you know, EKS solves a lot of that for you, but you still have to operate it. And, you know, there's, we've learned a lot about Kubernetes in this, you know, kind of build out of what we're doing. Just because Kubernetes does it doesn't mean it's easy, right? You have the ability to set the number of replicas, you can set, you know, how much do I want this to auto scale? And we'll even do this on the ephemeral, you know, kind of environments as well. Like a customer, you know, when we set up an EKS cluster, we might say, hey, set that cluster to auto scaling so that if they get more and more developers creating pull requests, it's automatically going to spin up the, the cluster size and then spin it down when, you know, maybe during the middle of the night or, you know, when they aren't using it as much. But you tend to have other issues with pods needing to move nodes, like all sorts of things that you have to deal with, even just in the ephemeral side of it that, yeah, EKS can do the production side of it, but a production ready kind of Kubernetes cluster is very different than a kind of staging environment, ephemeral. We get a lot more forgiveness, right? If the staging environment or one of your ephemeral environments, you know, doesn't work for some reason, that would be a lot less problematic than, hey, my production cluster is not working and what did you guys do to it? So, you know, we're kind of like really focused on the staging side. We see the world where production could be very interesting and we're kind of dogfooding that for ourselves. Like we're running, like I said, release inside of release right now. So we're kind of figuring out all of those things. And, you know, if it makes sense, we may end up releasing some stuff over there as well. 
What has been the hardest engineering problem you've had to solve in building release? I think it goes back to the, you know, kind of the vast number of ways that people build out their technology. And I think that will continue to be the challenge in this space uh, for the foreseeable future. When you start looking at, first of all, like how people use Docker, right? Like that one itself, like again, was super shocking to me, but even just making sure that we support, you know, all of the various different ways that Docker and Docker Compose can be used. That problem is kind of like chasing your tail. You'll come across, you know, basically every new customer we bring on, we learn something about Docker and Docker Compose that we did not know before. You know, build args, uh, config maps, how those have to flow into Kubernetes, how you can do volumes, how the commands uh, that you can use within Docker make their way into, into Kubernetes. Like all of those things are super challenging. And, you know, people have said, well, why don't you, there's this open source project that's actually really good called Compose. It starts with a K, which takes Docker Compose and kind of brings it into Kubernetes manifest. And people always ask us, well, like, why don't you guys use that? And the, the answer to that is because we're trying to build this kind of very special purpose end-to-end -end pull request all the way to kind of Kubernetes if, you know, with the namespacing and the routing with DNS entries and all of those things done, it just didn't quite fit. But there are a lot of things that you, you that, that you can learn by looking at that stuff. Because if you go look at the Compose with a K uh, code base, you'll see like the various number of permutations that that had to be solved for to get that project to go. Like we have to solve for that. Plus, we have to translate it all into kind of this ephemeral environment universe within Kubernetes. So. That technically has, has been a, a pretty big challenge for us, which I think, you know, then you start extending that beyond just like, you know, Docker containers into, hey, now everybody, like, how do they do RDS? How do they do Lambdas? How do they do all of these various different services? I think that is the, the, the number one most complex problem that we're going to continue to face for, forever within this company. Tell me more about how you see the next few months going for you? What are you trying to build out right now? Sure. So, you know, I think one of the things that is, you know, it kind of goes to like applications aren't one size fits all anymore. You know, we've, we tended to start this with the idea that Docker and Docker containers and Kubernetes were going to be kind of the core, which they are. And I think we've pretty much got that solved kind of you know, as long as you're on Docker and and we can spin up a Kubernetes cluster for you, we can we can make your your environments run. But that's not all of what your environment is. You know, static front ends, kind of Jamstack front ends, making sure that you know seamlessly you've got CDN. You know, namespacing. You know, we talk about namespacing a lot today, but when we bring up an environment within Kubernetes, it has a namespace, but an application will likely also have a, a, a JavaScript single page app front end now too. And so originally we did that by saying, hey, just fire it up in a Docker container and serve it out of the container. But our customers said, no, no, that's not how I run in production. I actually put this on a CDN. And so being able to kind of end to end all the way from even a JavaScript app that doesn't run within a container at all, it runs in a CDN, kind of getting that to seamlessly work within the environment so we can really do this kind of I call it jam stack to full stack environment idea is really what we're focused on at the moment. So 
a customer that comes in and says, hey, you know, I've got, you know, this technology ecosystem, inevitably it's got JavaScript front ends included in it. And we have to seamlessly work with that all the way through the Kubernetes subsystem. And so we're, we're kind of heads down working on solving that problem right now. What are the kinds of applications that you cannot currently support with release? You know, anything that's not on Docker, currently, we kind of have said, hey, we're going to focus on people who have containerized. So we really need to have, you know, the customer is either in the process of Dockerizing and containerizing their applications, or they've already done it. So that when we when we build the environments, we're kind of building a, a containerized environment within Kubernetes. I think that's the, the kind of core. We tend to, you know, focus on AWS the most um, because... Customers that are on a professional plan can run this within their Kubernetes, or sorry, their Amazon ecosystem um, within EKS. That being said, we do have some customers who are on other cloud platforms that um, are using us, but we're actually hosting it for them, almost kind of like Heroku. For them, it's like a Heroku review apps, even though they're on GCP, but those apps tend to run within our hosted environment instead of on their cluster. So I tend to say our ideal customer is on AWS. That being said, we do have some that aren't, but they're, they're kind of doing a hosted version of it. So Dockerizing, containerizing, being on AWS are ideal. And, you know, it, it, shortly we'll, we'll have this static uh, front end build system kind of out there too. So you'll have kind of full stack all the way, Jamstack all the way to uh, containerized environments all the way in the end. So before this, as you mentioned, you spent a total of 10 years on a previous company, went through an acquisition. And I wonder if after those 11 years, if you had any other ideas for companies aside from release? Well, I was in the automotive space, uh, so I could tell you about a hundred different automotive uh, startup ideas that I had. But I, I kind of wanted to be back to the core, you know, my background. I was a com- you know computer engineering, you know, firmware engineering early on, systems engineering at the earliest days of my career. Throughout my entire career, I've always kind of gravitated toward the technical side of the problems that we were solving even though we applied it to various different spaces, like parental controls was one of the companies that we started, a company by the name of I Am Safer. CarWoo was another company that we started in the automotive space. We always took technology into non-traditional spaces. We built really amazing product and technology teams and technology stacks. And then when we went through the uh, acquisition into TrueCar, it was clear that like I ended up becoming the CTO there and I just kept gravitating towards the technology side of things. And so me and my co-founders were like, we have to do something on the technical side. It just kind of fits our, our DNA. You know, we've run public uh, technology, com- you know, public company technology teams all the way down to startups. So solving the problems there have always kind of been in our sweet spot. That being said, there was probably a hundred different automotive ideas that I could go do, but I kind of wanted to get out of the automotive space. Uh, I spent 10 years there. It was time to move on. In the technology world, you know, developer efficiency uh, is something that, you know, whether it was ephemeral environments, uh, PR environments, staging environments, or anything else, I, I still believe that developer efficiency is kind of the most important thing that you've got to do with inside your organization. And it's super expensive. You know, we had to spin up a team of like 10 DevOps people to build the platform at TrueCar. And I always, as the CTO of that company, felt like, man, that 10 people, if we could focus their energy and effort on our customer problems and not our infrastructure problems, that would be the best, you know, scenario. And so every idea that we have had has been around like developer efficiency, whether that's 
you know, there's there's tools like Git Prime that helped uh, organizations kind of understand developer efficiency. You know, this on-demand staging environment is another one. There's tons of stuff within the ecosystem around APM. We think some of the stuff that Datadog does is great, but there are opportunities in that that could be solved. So generally speaking, it's all been around developer efficiencies of ideas that we've been working through. The other one that we, we talk about all the time is making uh, data scientists more productive because I think data scientists, you know, they, they live in the land of notebooks and then getting their code running in production is, an, is still a really difficult problem. And I know there's a ton of companies working on that, but we saw that firsthand and we tried a bunch of products at TrueCar to try to solve that problem. And that's a difficult one that I think is a big opportunity for somebody to go solve. Hmm, indeed. The notebook side of things, this is kind of a strange question, but the process of going from data scientist on a notebook to production machine learning task, why is that significantly harder to solve than getting a staging environment and promoting it to production? I don't, I don't know if it's harder. <laughs> it's different. Um, it's a different problem set to go solve. So data scientists, generally mathematicians, you know, doing their modeling within a, in a notebook, what we tended to see was once those models were created, the coefficients were built, you know, there was a data engineering team kind of sitting on the other side of that that needed to translate that into a running production model. And so that handoff was always tricky. And I think that ultimately is where, you know, companies like Data Robot, I know that AWS has a tool, I can't remember exactly what it is that tries to help with this too, but the idea is that if you can get the, the notebooks to kind of become production runnable models, then you can kind of skip that step of having the data science team need to translate the model into running code. And I think that problem is not necessarily, I mean, technically it can be done, right, with people, but automating that end to end, I think is a, it's tricky because the, you know, the notebook itself isn't written with kind of production grade thinking behind it. It's a bunch of data. You're, you're, you're testing your models. You're wanting to see if you can fit the, the problem to the line. And when you get something that works, then somebody's got to go implement whatever model that is within, you know, whatever technology ecosystem uh, the company has chosen to run. So you have a problem of like, hey, there's a, you know, a number of different technology ecosystems that those things would need to translate into. And then making that a super seamless thing from, from notebook to running production code is a pretty tricky problem to solve. All right, Tommy. Well, is there anything else that we haven't covered that you'd like to explore? No, I mean, I think, you know, I think the developer efficiency and and I think ultimately we're, we're a pretty mission-driven company. You know, we're trying to help developers ship things faster, not because, you know, that's the end. The end is getting great ideas out into the world, right? We think the world needs as many great ideas as can become, you know, can make their way out there. And when technology becomes a limiter on how fast you can get your ideas out. I think that's the area that we want to solve. We think staging is a big one. We saw it ourselves where, you know, we had 200 engineers kind of stomping on each other's toes, sharing a single staging environment. That's a big bottleneck, but we're going to end up, you know, solving, you know, developer efficiency. And ultimately, because we want to see the best ideas make their way out into the world. And I think that's the kind of focus of what we're up to. Staging environments is a good entry point because everybody struggles with it. Okay, Tommy, thanks for coming on the show. Great talking. All right, thank you so much. 